0: Hello and welcome back to the Miss Amanda Chen Show. We're now in season three of the 100 Masked Men series where I anonymously interview different men from all walks of life about self-identity, expectations from society, and how that affects our self-worth. Masked man number 62 is the visible man. He shares his transition from being an Asian American female to an Asian American male. And all the things that change from not being able to smile at women on the street anymore, to having competitive banter with male colleagues. I think what is most interesting is the conversation on the power of sex, specifically moving from one might be considered the top of the totem pole to the bottom of the totem pole when it comes to what society deems as sexually attractive. Let's get into it. I hope you enjoy the show.
1: Me and... uh... My uh, brother were born here in the States. My older sister was born in Taiwan, which is where my parents are from. We're Taiwanese American. I was born in Baltimore, Maryland, but funny enough I was only there for less than a year and then we moved out to the valley. and I am now actually living in the valley, although you know I haven't been here since my childhood. Mm. So 42 years old, Taiwanese American, transgender man uh living in the valley
0: cool and then how how much older or young is your brother
1: my brother is uh two and a half years older than me Okay, a little bit more than that and
0: your sister is
1: my sister is 11 years older than me oh wow Uh, there's actually a gap because between my brother and my sister I have another late brother who passed away when he was two years old.
0: Mm-hmm. So,
1: yeah, that was really tough on the family. Uh, I, that was way before I was born, ho- however.
0: So, when did your parents immigrate to the States?
1: My parents immigrated. Um, I think my sister was not, she was like maybe one or two. No, 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 no. Actually, I'm wrong there. She definitely was, you know, there was a time where, my mom and my dad, uh, my sister and my mom were actually in Taiwan for a while. My 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 dad came here earlier because they needed doctors in the States. So he, he kind of rode that wave over here. Hmm. Um, he had just finished medical school in, in Taipei. And so when he got here, he had to finish another year or two of teaching or residency. And then uh, he was able to achieve his full MD here. So there was, there was at least a year, I want to say maybe even a few years, where my mom and dad, after they were married and after they had my older sister, that they were apart. They were living a remote marriage.
0: So what was your, your mom doing and how long did it take her to get from Taiwan out to join?
1: Uh, so she was a teacher, which is a very coveted profession in Taiwan. And yeah, I mean, they were both doing really well. They both came from very small rural towns in southern part of Taiwan. So when they left to Taipei, they were like kind of known as those, that couple, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) That achieved a lot. And then furthermore, when they came here to the States, they were in a sense like celebrities. Their towns are so small that where they came from which is in Pingdong and Mainong, southern rural part of of Taiwan. When we go back to visit, like everybody knows who we are. Wow. Yeah. So
0: when was the first time you visited and how was that experience?
1: The first time I visited, I can't remember. (laughs) (laughs) There's a picture of me sitting on my mom's lap. I must have been five or six, something like that, right? I might have even gone back earlier too but the first time I can remember was in my 20s right after college I'd say my mid-20s 25 maybe we went to visit yep it it was cool we had like a family reunion where we drove this tour bus all the way from Taipei we flew into Taipei we hung out there with a bunch of our cousins, aunts and uncles, and then we all drove a big like party bus down Mm. to the Southern part of Taiwan. It was funny because these, these towns that my parents grew up in are so rural. They're very, it's basically all agriculture. And we had these big party luxury buses that were driving Wow. into these towns <laughs> and they were like you know really small roads the the party buses barely fit on the roads
0: that's insane so even I can't even imagine what that looks like that's hilarious
1: it was pretty funny it, it, it was pretty funny people would be working like in the fields of the rice paddies with their little you know <laughs> farmer hats on right and they mm. would see this big bus coming in Yeah, agriculture was a big part of those towns in terms of like economy, uh, what those parts were known uh, for for in in terms of making money. And there is also (laughs) a plant called binglong, which is kind of an amphetamine in a sense, or an upper, Mm. that the taxicab drivers uh, in Taiwan used to chew on because it, it's a stimulant. It keeps you up. Okay. And in my mom's hometown, that was like one of the primary produce that came out of that town. And they had like these like glass cases that look like telephone boobs with no telephone booths, Right. So they're glass on all four sides. And then these like young women were dancing in bikinis in them as we're driving through. And I was asking, you know, my cousins like what is going on here mm-hmm. you know <laughs> and then they're like oh those are the Long girls they dance in the glass booths you know to attract customers into the stores to buy Long. I'm like wow that is so crazy I've never seen anything like that before
0: interesting
1: <laughs> it was Yeah, I was only 25, so that was like 16, 18 years ago. So it is a a little bit earlier, but still, in my mind, inappropriate at that time.
0: Oh, 100%, yeah.
1: (laughs) You know, I was like, um, what is going on here? So we came back to the States. By that time, my my mom and dad were already divorced, so she didn't come on the trip. My stepmother was there. (laughs) I went back to my mom, and I'm like, uh want to make sure like you are never a Long girl were you oh my god <laughs> at, at that remark she rolled her eyes at me that's hilarious <laughs> I mean you just gotta I just know to even see if she knew about it right <laughs> but apparently it was a thing not just these days but back then you know mm-hmm.
0: yeah I mean I can I can definitely imagine things like that as ways to just attract people I mean, they didn't have billboards or anything else, right? So I guess it makes sense.
1: Yeah. Yeah. But it's interesting because they're all the Bing Long shops are lined up next to each other. So they like it was these like booths, these class booths with these young women, like, gosh, I I I wouldn't even say that they're age appropriate, right? Yeah. Some of them were dancing. And so like, how do you choose which Bing Long store you go into, right? anyways yeah it's it's an interesting phenomenon and totally inappropriate and also you know i just i was it it was a spectacle for me to see that Mm -hmm. you know (laughs) um yeah so at that point in my life i actually you know was four to five years uh self-identified as a lesbian I I was part of the lesbian community for 15 years because there were no ways or visibilities to identify as trans, Mm -hmm. you know, back then. I I knew I liked women or or girls, you know, ever since the age of 17. So, um, and there was no trans visibility and trans visibility actually hasn't become big until the past half decade. You know, so for a good 10 to 15 years, I was part of the lesbian community. And so seeing like these being long girls and feminism as a big part of of the lesbian community was just shocking to me, you know? Mm -hmm. (laughs) So, yeah,
0: that's wild. Yeah, so I have
1: to say about that.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. So when when you kind of knew that at 17, did you come up to your parents Pretty quickly about that and how was that received?
1: I came out first to my brother Mm -hmm. and the reason why I came out I knew before way before that I was attracted to girls or women but I came out to my brother because I was spending so much time at my best friend's house and you know I had come to learn or identify that I was attracted to her as more than just best friends and You know, I needed to tell somebody about it. When I told my brother, I came out to my brother as bi. And he's like, oh, that's cool. You know, (laughs) you might as well come out now, like, and because you're about to go to college, because I was uh, graduating from my high school and about to go to UCLA. So he's like, it could be a good time for you to explore. My sister, however, didn't really take well to that. Mm. Now, when I came out as transgender later in my life, in my adulthood, for whatever reason, my sister had a a better time accepting that. Whereas for my brother, you know, I mean, we grew up very traditional Taiwanese. And even though me and my brother were born here in the States, a lot of that tradition was passed on, you know, directly to us from our parents, who are immigrant parents. And so You know, when I told him that I identify as transgender, he was not sure what to do. He's like, so should I protect you or should I beat you up a little bit? You know, Mm -hmm. if now you're going to identify as my younger brother. And I said, oh, that's interesting that you'd ask me that question. I said, maybe neither or maybe a little bit of both. I don't know. What? How does that change your perspective, you know? if you knew that I was your little brother this whole time, would that have changed your, your relationship as a big brother to me necessarily, mm-hmm. right? And so that was a very interesting conversation to have. And we kind of just left it at that. <laughs> and we've bonded, me and my brother and my sister are very close to each other, you know? And we learned from each other. I think they've learned a whole lot from me in my transition.
0: Mm-hmm. You know, I when as you were saying that, I thought, okay, if you began by saying you were bi, I can imagine your brother being like, Oh, that's cool. Like you you kind of go both ways. And then I can imagine a more mature sister being like, Oh, you're say you're just trying to say this to get attention because you're on your way to college and you know it's the trendy thing to do so that's how I saw it and then yeah and then you when you switched over that your older sister was more accepting of that as in like okay you know you really do you know have an identity of you know that you wanted to to express yourself specifically it's not like oh I'm just in college and I'm trying to be cool kind of thing uh, or I'm going through a phase right and then yeah
1: that's interesting I never saw it like like that, but I think that you're completely valid, putting yourself in their shoes and 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 adding that perspective. I think that could have possibly been it. Yeah, <laughs>
0: yeah. So interesting. So how has how has the transition been for you personally? Because I know, I mean, that's how your your family members reacted, but for you, like, how was that journey for you? And and were there any important people along the way that um, that kind of helped you through the transition, or you know? Um, made it really difficult for you either or?
1: Yeah, uh, the short answer is that it has been a full anthropological experience for me. <laughs> mm-hmm. From many angles, from Asian American angle, from just an American angle, from girl or women's perspective and like a men's perspective, as well as trans and and lesbian. Like I had to go through so many different identities to Mm. come to where I am right now. A lot of things change when you're visibly seen as a man. So the first thing that happened after I started taking testosterone, uh, and I had gotten top surgery uh, before, that's also known as a bilateral mastectomy, right? Or top surgery for short. That happened when I was, uh, I want to say 32, yeah, 31, 32. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, I didn't actually start taking gender-affirming hormones until 2015. So I did that first. A lot of people might go the opposite way. They'll take gender-affirming hormones first, and then they'll get their top surgery and sculpt, you know, their chest's around the muscles that develop after they take the, the hormone therapy. But I didn't reverse because I wasn't sure whether I wanted to take hormones first, right? Okay. I wasn't sure I wanted to do that part of the transition um, for me, for my journey. Every journey is different, but I did end up doing both. Physical transition does not define somebody's transgender identity. I just want to clear that up for everybody. I could have identified as a man without going through any sort of physical changes if I wanted to. That's completely uh, appropriate, especially Mm -hmm. these days. People are voicing um, their identities more and more. It's not even just I identify as, it's I am a man. I could have said that 10 years ago without any of these physical transitions. Just want to make that clear for any listeners. But this is my journey, and this is how I did it. So a month after I started taking gender-affirming hormones, my voice dropped right away, mm. you know? And I used to love singing, so I had to sing different things now, <laughs> you mm. know? Like right now, like it's easier for me to sing Frank Sinatra, whereas before, I, I would never be able to go that low. And I can't go and sing some of my favorite tunes from the 90s, like Mariah Carey or anything like that anymore. <laughs> Unfortunately, it's just too high. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was the first thing that changed. And then the, the more and more, I'd say probably by second or third year of gender forming hormone treatment, I, I, I started passing as a man. And it's very interesting because having... To had grown up as a girl and a woman, like being seen as a girl and a woman before, there are certain things that you learn that you're allowed to do as a woman that you're not allowed to do as a man. I cannot just, if I see a woman walking with her stroller and her cute baby inside of the stroller toward me, I can't just say, Oh my God, your baby's so cute, and go up to the baby and say, You know, like. They, that will make somebody freeze. Mm, um, yep. if I do that as a visible man, um, I don't say hi to women first anymore before I, I would say hi to everyone. I pass again. And uh, you know, this could be an American thing. It could just be how masculinity and femininity is defined within American culture, right? That unless you're invited to say hi to a woman, you're passing it's probably best or safer not to do it first.
0: Yeah.
1: I don't know if you agree.
0: (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, yeah, there's a safety thing, right. So
1: there's a why is this guy just coming up and saying like, you know, you know, hi to my, me or my baby, you know, (laughs) get away from me. Right. So you have to kind of take that into consideration a lot of things and just, uh, I had looked at, you know, certain people that were Asian male, big brothers or role models in my life, say things to me like, Hey, it's just really hard being an Asian man, especially here in America. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, oftentimes your suggestions or your recommendations, whatever you recommend at work, any type of strategy proposal, it's highly overlooked or ignored or passed on in comparison to somebody who's a white cis male you know and you know I didn't actually notice that quite as much I did notice it before when I was visibly appearing as an Asian woman yeah Uh, even though I was always masculine presenting people still saw okay that's a you know, butch Asian woman, right? <laughs> or an androgynous Asian woman, but now I, I fully see it because I experience it myself.
0: So I have a question. So this is a stereotype that I've seen in kind of Asian Americans, in the sense of that Asian men kind of get the worst end of the stick. You know, people just give them a bad rap in comparison. Asian women are kind of glamorized, you know, as a fetish almost, you know, and then with Asian men, it's like, like small dick size, you know, just yeah. math, you know, whatever those things are. And it no, there's nothing positive and it's almost a joke. And then that's why I can see that maybe they don't get the same respect in the workspace. So having been on both sides, did you experience, you know, positives and negatives of, of the gender role? Uh, and did you experience those, all of those stereotypes or were they kind of different once you were in each space?
1: Oh, absolutely. So there, there's different, um, components of, of power, right? Um, Mm -hmm. you could look at it from a political angle. You could look at it from a anthropological angle, but, um, let's just talk about sex power. Okay. Mm -hmm. So another thing that my brother said when I started to identify as transgender, he's like, are you sure you want to do that? You really want to go from the top of the sex totem pole to the bottom of the sex totem pole? Mm -hmm. And it's really sad that, that he had to say that. But here in the States right now, it's kind of true, you know, when you're looking at certain things like. Like we're just talking about small dick syndrome, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, BDE or big dick energy, right? All of that stuff. <laughs> and I only mentioned that because I was watching a movie this weekend with some of my college friends. Uh, what was it? Eurovision. And they're talking about, you know, it's just, I don't know if you've seen that movie, but it's like, um, like the star surge or American Idol of Europe. And so all these countries compete with each other with like the next best singer or duo right and there's this one guy from russia and and he like was the 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 consistent winner and he just walked around with bde (laughs) Mm -hmm. yeah (laughs) so they made reference to bde and then my friends were like what is that i'm like oh that that's a reference for uh big big dick energy right (laughs) and it's it's kind of true it's it's a weird phenomenon and it's, it's very true. Uh, unfortunately it's reality. Now I can say, and don't ask me why I know this, but that, that reference is completely untrue. <laughs> you know, there are, <laughs> um, a lot of white men out there with, with small dicks. Right. And there are a lot of Asian guys out there with, with big dicks. Right. Now that said, why is this conversation important, you mm-hmm. know? And then and if that, if we're basing a lot of culture on a f- fact that is completely not true, right? Or a belief that is completely not true, then what does that say about our culture, right? What, what does it say about all of the things that have been happening recently with AAPI hate? Yeah. Especially picking on elderly folks a lot of these perpetrators are definitely probably have mental health issues, right? But why pick on the elderly? Why not come and pick on me? I mean, I'm only five, six in height, but I will kick your fucking butt if you mess with me, you know, Mm -hmm. don't mess with anybody that looks like my grandpa or my grandma. Like, you know, I just, why do people think they have the right to do that? Now, the question is, would somebody actually do that if, you know, okay, here, why don't you go ahead and walk into a black neighborhood and do that to some black elderly folks? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Are you going to do that? You know, no, probably not. So why would you do it to Asians? Right. And so I think in general, the culture as a whole, there is, there is a certain level of disrespect or there's certain image of weakness, right? Right. Um, and then add on top of that, the masculinity and femininity, all I was talking about in terms of the totem pole. Um, and that's just a lot of different layers of, of different types of discrimination there. You know, how can I say it? It, it? It's a very different based on somebody's ethnicity, how they get discriminated. There was a trans camp that I attended And we had a POC workshop where all of the trans men of color, we got together and it was just our time to talk about different topics. Right. Mm -hmm. And it was interesting because I said my share during that workshop was, you know, I I definitely noticed a transition of of power. Now, given that, that I don't want to necessarily say that I had a valid power visibly seen as an Asian female before because I think that power is also very fetishized and sexualized it's not real authentic and of value kind of power right Mm -hmm. unfortunately but there was definitely was a shift in that you know when I transitioned to becoming a visible Asian man and the other Latin butch or Latin trans guy in the, in the group raised their hand and said, I experienced that as well. You know, I felt like I had actually even, it, it could have been perceived as, oh, you know, Asians and Latina women, like very exotic, you know? And so, you know, in a sense, you had a, a level of stature with that. Again, I'm not saying that that's like a real stature, right, or real value. Unfortunately, it could be fetishized value. But me and the Latin guy definitely like related to each other with that aspect in in our transition that we noticed a shift in quote unquote power. And then a friend of ours, uh, the Black trans guy was like, well, I went from a place of little privilege being seen as a Black woman to no privilege. (laughs) (laughs) And then I'm just like, oh my God, like 100% 100% true, you know, so it is interesting to see. And these are just three people. That's not representative of all cultures. But we're already seeing just between three different ethnicities, one person representing each ethnicity, a difference in how the shift happened, you know, Uh, transitioning from female to male. I don't want to say that each one of us represented the whole community, but that was just each of our own experiences with our respective ethnicities.
0: Yeah. And I think no one has even discussed that. Like no one has put that on the map where there is, um, I would say more popularity or just a trend in ethnic women, you know, so there has been a power shift I see there in, Mm -hmm it could be sexualized. It could be desirability, but I think it's also just more women are rallying for more women and intersectionality in that sense and more variety of ethnicities and representation amongst all women. But on the flip side, I think with men, it's still the same like white Ken doll man that everyone wants, you know, Mm -hmm. and, and there is, there hasn't been any movement around from that. So when you're on this journey and you're moving out from one side that, might appear to have more power to the other. I don't think anyone has ever noticed it because why would anyone talk about the loss of power? You know what I mean? Because everyone's just talking about how to gain power. So I think that's really interesting.
1: Right, 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 right. It is humbling uh, to be able to share about that shift. You know, Um, I think before, even though I was masculine presenting, uh, I was seen as a woman. I definitely got a more um, hit on before. <laughs> this, is, this is an interesting thing. On social media before, when I was uh, visibly seen as a woman, right? Even though I was always identified as trans or masculine, I never ever got dick pics. Mm-hmm. You know, I'd, I'd hear <laughs> about those girls or friends that got dick pics, right? Now, as an Asian man, and I don't know whether it's because people are confused, I'd say that I'm trans or maybe I say I'm queer on my profile, but I've gotten dick pics from cis guys and I'm like, whoa, what the heck, you know? <laughs> and, you know, I, I don't respond in a nasty way. I, I, I always respond out of curiosity. I'm like, why... Do you, did you send me that you know like I, I'm not saying this in a in a way to like offend you or to make you embarrassed right because they they shower me with all these compliments when they send me the dick pic mm-hmm. I just say you know it I, and I'm not saying it's inappropriate but I could you know report you but that's not what I'm doing right here I'm just really asking I'm curious why 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 send me a dick pic, you know?
0: (laughs) Oh my God. So what did they say back to you? Did anyone reply? Oh, they're
1: just continuing to flirt with me. Like, oh, (laughs) do you not like it? You know, like things uh, things that I can imagine my friends who used to get dick pics would say, you know, like they're just being (laughs) perverts basically, right? (laughs) So I, I usually end up like blocking them or restricting them. Yeah, it's just very interesting to me. Because I'll also talk to my friends who are um, trans white guys or trans Latin guys. Have you got like you know, like say for instance that friend that was in the POC workshop, the the the, the Latin guy. Have you gotten dick pics? You know, <laughs> after your transition. No, nope. no, 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 no. Definitely mm-hmm. not the black guy. Definitely not the white trans guy. But the Asian trans guy gets it. Why?
0: Huh. Right. Yeah.
1: I'm not gonna try to sit there and like uh, philosophize or even reason or explain (laughs) it. I'm just putting it out there so that whoever's listening to this can internalize it and not necessarily seek an answer within yourself, but be like, huh, in in light of all the AAPI hate and what I was mentioning before about level of respect, I think this is definitely an incident where you could see that there is a difference of level of respect. You know here if you're asian american uh, and if you're asian american man you know so something that i i've noticed i've also noticed that from a business or professional standpoint now if you're not articulate as an asian man unfortunately it's too bad too bad for you doesn't matter how attractive you are right the the articulation and being able to communicate well as well as your charisma are extremely important when you're an Asian man in the business world. When you're an Asian woman, as long as I was articulate and intelligent with what I said, people would listen. It's like, mm-hmm. oh, okay. Here's an Asian woman, you know, and you get that like kind of back end discriminatory comment, like, wow, you're very articulate. What do yeah. you mean by that? You know? Mm -hmm. I used to get that all the time when you're an Asian man if you're not you're just unfortunately that's end game for you you have to be very articulate you have to communicate very well you have to be very charismatic height is also very important too I think in the business world with the pandemic and everything being virtual I feel like it's actually been a little bit of an advantage because everyone looks the same height when they're sitting down right
0: Yeah. (laughs) It helps for sure. Yeah. So how were your interactions then with with men? Because once you started to to look, you know, to identify as a man, um, and people would treat you, would they treat you as a straight man? And like how would you interact with them and engage with them and were their conversations different than the times that you were a woman? And do you do you feel like you connect easier with men or women or both now?
1: Yes yeah yeah it, it, so um, yes to everything that you just posed as a question and then I'm gonna get into a little bit more of an anecdote of a strange the strange dance that that some men do in the corporate world but first mm-hmm. let me answer uh, a few of those questions Sure um, now that I'm passing uh, as an Asian man passing as a man in general I do get a lot of you know, like if I bring my car into the dealership, just, uh, hey, buddy, I'll take care of you. Hey, chief, you know, Uh, hey, man, hey, dude, you know, so there's a certain level of respect that does come when you're visibly seen as a man that I think is unfortunate. You know, I one time at a Toyota dealership, it's like anything else I can do for you, buddy, at the end, you know, after he addressed me as chief or man or all these things that that seemed like he was addressing me with a higher level of respect than if I came in as a perceived Asian woman, even though I've always been masculine presenting, right? And I said, yeah, there's something that you could do for me. For the next woman that you service, can you um, refer to them as chief? And then he's just like, he looked at me kind of strange. He's like, hey, man, yeah, you got it. (laughs) (laughs) And that was my little bit of activism there. Um, a lot of what I do outside the corporate space, um, with a business that I own, is gender equality, and fighting for, you know, social social justice uh, for women and people of color as well. Um, so you know, that was something that I noticed, and I think like I I really like this angle of of how things are going more towards gender inclusivity or neutrality, like when we're using phrases like bunny, buddy or dude or man or sir or chief, like what is the purpose of doing that? You know, there really is no purpose. It's better if you say, um, you know, how can I help you my friend, right? Cause that's gender neutral. And if you're referring to a group of people then don't say guys, just say folks or, you know, uh, friends or people, you know, uh, everyone, all that is more, I think, inclusive of everybody. And you're not for, definitely don't say ladies, you know, cause <laughs> I, I know for a lot of women who are cis and heteronormative who do not like that reference. So it's just safer not to use that when you're referring to a group of, women to say, hey, ladies, you know, (laughs) I I think just, you know, erring on the side of of not genderizing things is always going to be safe, and it's going to be more universal, more respectful. So now let me go into this corporate dance between men that I've experienced. I spent some time out of corporate and before, you know, um, during my transition, just running my business. And I recently, within the last... Is it three, four years, stepped into the corporate world again, this time stepping into the corporate world, I visibly appeared as a man. I was surprised. You know, I wake up every morning. I know I'm transgender, walk in the office, you know, for about a year, every day, I had to tell myself or pinch myself, people are seeing you as a man. And -hmm. that felt good because that's always what I've wanted. But it was a very interesting experiment too, Right because now I'm being seen as a man. So let's see what it's like to be a man in the corporate space. The most interesting story I had was I was a project manager on a very high profile project. And I was one of the first people on my project because I was a project manager. Later on, maybe a month after I joined um, the architect, what do you call a solution architect who's like the tech guru of a project team and a software development team joins the project. And him and I had this strange banter or competition with each other where, you know, we're in front of the project team kind of competing with each other, right? Mm. different roles, right? Project manager is the one who plans the strategy and the timeline and the scope and the resources for the project, while the technical um, solution architect is kind of like the brains behind the project, right? So there was like this this banter for about three to four weeks, and sometimes there were like um, some gendered or sexually derogatory kind of comments that came from this person as an experiment and this is only as an experiment right because I was I was stealth right I wasn't um I I I I responded to him in the best way that I could and sometimes unfortunately that was playing the game just because I wanted to experiment and see what was going on here right so after about three four weeks all of a sudden with, with with us kind of competing with each other and sometimes include inclusive of, unfortunately, genderized comments, right? In this competition of masculine flair, all of a sudden we were cool with each other. It was like we were at the same level. And so the banter then continued, but more in a bro kind of way, mm-hmm. but we were friends. And we were colleagues at that point. And it's very interesting because I did mention this to other friends of family. I'm like, well, what is up with this? You know, I, I I engage in this experiment with this person and, you know, it depends. Not all the times will this need to happen. And I don't think this ever needs to happen with anyone going forward. But the reason why I went through this experiment was so I can share this anecdote so listeners can see that it's completely unnecessary to do this kind of song and dance, you know, in the office to establish... What pecking order, alpha order, all of that is unnecessary. Like the way that you would treat a man or someone who's masculine presenting versus a woman or somebody who's feminine leaning or somebody who's non-binary or somebody who does not identify as either or or neither, you know, like there is a level of professionalism that I think that we can achieve. And none of that is necessary, you know, <laughs> 100%. completely unnecessary. And, you know, in this particular company or org within this IT org, unfortunately, things like that were allowed comments like that. And I think it, I, I do think it is leadership and HR's responsibility to enforce a workplace that is equal and healthy and intellectual and emotionally, you know, thriving Right and safe for all people, and it's sad. This is this guy who uh, became my best bud on that project, who is initially my, I guess, pecking order competitor, had learned this his whole life in the office and his professional career, and it's sad that men have to go through that, and it's not necessary. And it, it, it also while you're doing that with each other and people are watching, it's not healthy and it's uh, not productive for women or other people who are not involved to see that either.
0: Yeah, I think there's so much of an identity struggle already, you know, with who are we, what do we believe in, in the in the self in general. And then once we add in all of those layers of gender, and then within those layers of gender is all of these dynamics of power, you know, based on yeah. how people title you right? There's just, you can never get down to the core because we've, we've tacked on so many layers already. And I think, you know, addressing people just as, like you said, just in in an equal sense, then we can at least remove the power layer, you know, which is layered within gender and then slowly peel them off until we can get to just like a one-on-one more intimate, authentic interaction without these expectations or you know, need to impress or need to stand up in a certain way or appear a certain way.
1: Right, right. The more kind of positive behavior and the more terms and, and words that you can use that are safe and gender equal, the better a workplace is going to be, you know. Now that said, I did go along with this experiment because in order <laughs> for me to really experiment, I had to play the part. So I, I went ahead and said, okay, I'm going to be that guy, that broy guy. You know <laughs> that that plays along with this banter, but it was a really interesting experiment for me. I actually learned a lot. Now, uh, my second corporate job now, because I left that project, I'm still stealth in my corporate, my second corporate project as a trans man, visible trans man, passing man. Now, you know, I'm realizing that the activism I can do as a visibly passing man is much more powerful than what I could do before when I was visibly seen as a woman, even though I was always masculine presenting, right? Now, if I use terms like folks, or, you know, I don't use the word bro or dude, there's no need for any of that terminology, especially in the workplace. I can see that people if I don't know the gender of someone, I will refer to them as uh, them or they, or I'll ask for clarification on what their their, their preferred gender is. Again, preferred and identify are, are words that I don't even like to use because somebody's gender is just their gender. Whatever they tell you their gender is, this is their gender. You know, and I try to educate as a visible man, you no know, with my background having experienced all the identities that I've been through and it's even more effective and that's one thing that I really do enjoy as a visible man is being able to educate from a perspective of being seen as a cis Asian man I don't know how else to describe that except that it's it's more effective than it was before when I was not seen as a visible man so for all the men out there who wanna be an example <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and, and, and know or understand this banter that I talked about before, like if we were to work together, it's, it's the best activism that you could do, especially if you're white, white uh, cis male, if you can be the example as somebody who's seen in the quote unquote oppressor role that is more powerful than anybody else who is being oppressed, trying to do the activism for themselves. And that is true allyship. Mm -hmm.
0: When you cultivated a more, I guess, deeper connection with cis males, just just from appearances, I guess, when they self-identified with you a little bit better, would they share any feelings or thoughts on having so much privilege and power, you know, like, were they afraid to use it? Were they afraid of seeing things wrong? Like, where where were their perspectives that from the ones that you've met and interacted with when you kind of shared your side of the story with them?
1: Yeah, I would have to say that there are two spectrums of, of, of well, there's many different types of men out there, just as there's many different types of people in general, in any community, right? We're talking about the men's community. Uh, for that first project that I was on, uh, that probably was an example, unfortunately, of a man who was very sexist. He was a person of color. He wasn't Black, would just say that? Because I just wanted to eliminate those two spectrums, right? But he definitely, you know, acknowledged that he had privileges in some respects with his height, being physically fit, with uh being smart you know i think that men who have a certain status whether it has to do with education work experience attraction physical attraction height these things if you have privileges in these certain areas then you're in the perfect position to be in a good to be a good example to other men Mm -hmm. you know And I will say that, you know, somebody else that I met who is now one of my best friends, also cis male, this particular friend is white, Italian, tall, attractive, smart, is an example of a man who uses his privilege for the benefit of everyone else around to uplift people around him. So a lot of the work that I do with my company outside of my corporate life is I try to empower women, people of color and folks in the LGBTQ community. So this new best friend of mine worked on some very special projects for that company of mine Mm -hmm. and, and used his privilege to elevate people who are in a more oppressed position. Now that to me is true reverie right there. That to me is true power uh, and it's coming from a place of being humble. When you're creating things, you're creating art, you're creating projects that uplift other communities. And using your privilege to do that, that's that's truly amazing when you can do that. And you use your privilege to gain the advantage of yourself. There's really not much, um, unfortunately, uh, to be said about that. <laughs> Yeah. You know, there, there's nothing astonishing about that or amazing about that. When you use your privilege to do true allyship. And again, when I say allyship, I mean I mean not just saying like, "Oh, I support the LGBTQ community or I believe in Black Lives Matter." Action is allyship. When you're coming from a place of privilege and you're an ally who uses action to uplift other communities, that is the that is Power right there. That's creation of full power.
0: Yeah, hundred percent. And I think one thing you said to me that was pretty shocking was, I mean, race aside, in terms of just the male pecking order, if he looked, if he was tall, if he had status, you know, all of these are very traditional concepts of what. Uh strong male figure is supposed to look like. And I think there's been some evolution on what a strong female leader looks like.
1: yeah.
0: And I don't think that exists yet for men, which I think is pretty unfortunate and something that I just realized as you were saying that, like, you know, beyond our understanding of privilege and our understanding of gender and how to communicate with people, there's still that one image of what a man should or should not look like and the ones that uh, that through biology or whatever look like that you know have this have this this power in the palm of their hands and and you know are really unsure how to use it for good or for bad or for themselves you know what I mean there's just so much I think that uh, that might overwhelm a lot of cis men out there.
1: Right, right. I think a good way for us to move in that direction, I do completely agree with you. I think, yeah, for uh, women, there there are more and more now strong role models in, in that community now, which is great. I love that. And especially this year, Kamala Harris uh, in the vice presidency, we're gonna see a lot of women empowerment themes happening this year, thanks to all of that. I think that for us to achieve the same level in a men's perspective there's just going to be have to be more interracial male role models and so part of my work is also catapulting Asian men and and men of color into either visual editorial or entertainment comment with content where they're seen as either a the romantic lead b the hero or three just you know that man or masculine person that that somebody aspires to be right and unfortunately we haven't seen and I'll just speak specifically to the Asian male community here we haven't seen much of that and I'll go back all the way back to the days of Bruce Lee (laughs) and you know if you want to do an account I'm not going to go through the rundown of all his different films but he basically you know was completely overlooked in his career, given how talented he was, right? He fast forward to today. We've gotten a little, a little bit more light shed on it, um, thanks to folks or men like Henry Golden with um, Crazy Rich Asians. But there's been a lot of other Asian role models out there, like John Cho. Both John Cho's, the actor and the director, uh, and we're seeing a, it start to catch on a little bit more. But it's interesting that, again, I'm speaking specifically to the Asian American community, that we have to see films like Crazy Rich Asians or Bling Empire or, you know, House of Hoes to kind of intro in these types of characters. Why can't we have just regular uh, TV series or dramas or uh, comedies, you know, like uh, we saw, you know, Randy Park in... in. Um, what was that with Constance Wu, Constance Wu the um, comedy TV series, Fresh Off the Boat, five, five years that that series ran for. And, you know, again, I'm not just talking about Randy Park, I'm also talking about Constance Wu. It's like, they did a great job in, in, in that, but it was very much tailored to being fresh off the boat. You know, it's very Asianized, right? Same thing with Crazy Rich Asians, very Asianized. Same thing with Bling Empire, House of Hoes. When are we going to have like regular entertainment content where you're just going to have an Asian female or male lead? So it's not just a masculinity problem here, but it furthermore stifles Asian males in leading roles, you know, because number one, we don't have content that is just regular content. It's very Asianized content that that these uh, actors are in, right? And number two, just the way Asian males are seen um, in society today, you know, even if there was like a regular drama or a regular comedy, what are they gonna cast the Asian man in? So if it's not like something like um, uh, Fresh Off the Boat or it's not just something like uh, crazy rich Asians, right. Where it's all Asian cast, right. And me and Asian male lead in that, right. Then when are you going to actually cast an Asian male in a lead role or just regular TV series?
0: Well, I, I don't know. I think there's two, two theories to that because for the one thing, it's like there's representation for that story. Right. And you obviously need someone hopefully of that ethnicity to be able to represent it properly. But if we were going to have them more of a regular role, how would how would Hollywood do this where they would still be able to reflect the the cultural or respect the cultural aspect of this this person that's playing this role, but then also neutralize it so that this person can like live a normal life without having to throw in like a cultural lens um, and be the ethnic kid in in the group?
1: Right, right. I'm gonna use this TV series called Selfie, which had a really short run, unfortunately. And John Cho was cast as a romantic lead in that. And there's no like necessity for Selfie to be Asian centric. They just chose John Cho as the Asian as a, as a romantic lead. He happens to be Asian, and that TV series actually got cut short, very short. And mm. I hate to say that, unfortunately, it had to do with that stigma which is a uh, really unfortunate. So, you know, I think that we've got to continue to push for more entertainment content out there where Asian people aren't just pay- playing Asian people, they're just playing whatever the role is, right? <laughs> and, you know, more and more we'll, we'll see that uh, people will, will accept this. But I think it's like, uh, unfortunately, an endless cycle where producers or casting directors are thinking, okay, well, I, if I bring an Asian guy into this male, male like lead role, it's gonna reduce the viewership of this show. So, but we gotta take, you know, we gotta break the cycle somewhere, right? So, how's that gonna happen? A lot of the work that I do with my business outside of my corporate job is, you know, to to bring more light and visibility uh, to these folks. So that's me not just doing activism for LGBTQ and um, people of color, but specifically Asian masculinity.
0: Mm-hmm. That's beautiful. And I think, I mean, this this has been an amazing conversation. Like I didn't even recognize all of those different layers and just, you know, the transitions that you went through to be able to see that in, in an objective way, kind of literally from multiple sides has been just really eye-opening. So I just want to wrap up with, you know, how would you like to be, like to see the future unfold with, you know, more representation, more, do you want more people to be open uh, to this conversation or do you want more Asian people of, of all genders to be able to speak more courageously about themselves and, you know, get, get more out of this world and and kind of go against these stereotypes? Like, which side are you, are you leaning on? I think
1: both, both, both. Uh, Like, for instance, what you're doing with this podcast about masculinity, and it's not specifically about any one particular ethnicity, but it's important. And I hope that at least with my session, it, it illustrates that Ethnicity is important in terms of how we're being seen as masculine people, right? And so we need to fight each different type of masculine oppression a little bit differently. And that can be done, you know, both ways, the the ways that you had mentioned, you know, either by more representation or having more conversations about what's not appropriate as well. So push for more more positive, for more representation, and um, actively... And productively criticize what is happening in hollywood these days and ask the questions why why don't we have you know certain you know this this year with minari uh, winning the uh, category i think of best picture that was amazing you know we need more of that and we just need more content so definitely if you're on the creation side definitely please create more content that's more representative of our world and if you're on the activism side and you're really gifted on on constructive criticism then do that activism all of that is important.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And my last question to you before we wrap up is out of all of the topics we spoke about is there anything that jumped out at you that you would like to invite another man to elaborate on further in a new episode on the show?
1: Oh wow. Yeah, I'm I'm a big fan of, you know, a lot of the Asian masculine actors out there I would that would be great if you could interview somebody else who actually is Asian male celebrity (laughs) Mm,
0: okay Uh, that's a challenge I'll go I'll see if I can find one or at least maybe just an Asian male actor Um, we'll see how famous he is but yeah 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 (laughs) What an incredible conversation. It was so wild to hear the perspective from an individual that has literally experienced both sides of the gender game and how much race is a factor as well when it comes to power plays in society. What are your thoughts on this competitive aspect of men to men allyship? And can we move toward a change where we don't use sex as an instrument of power? Make sure to subscribe. And if you'd like to be on the show or know of someone with a unique perspective, slide into my DMs at Miss Amanda Chen on Instagram. And I'll see you next Wednesday with more episodes of The 100 Mask Men.